1: Women to Watch is the vehicle for developing new leaders, encouraging younger generations, and in building self-esteem for future entrepreneurs. Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome back to another week of Women to Watch here on WWDB Talk 860. My name is Sue Rocco, and I want to give a couple quick show notes before we get started. One is if you would like to join the conversation and call into the show, we would love to hear from you. You can do that by dialing 888 888- 3293306. And also please check out our website at womentowatch.net. That's women the number 2 watch.net for all our show updates. Um I'd like to give a thank you to Holy Redeemer Health System as always for being one of our core sponsors. And I'd also like to uh make an announcement that we will be bringing on a new Sponsor to the show. Her name is Jocelyn Ewert, and Jocelyn is the founding principal of Financial, or excuse me, Trust Financial, um, and she will be an ongoing contributor to the show as well. So I want to say thank you to Jocelyn. Um, I am very happy to have a guest with me in the studio this afternoon, and also our uh, weekly um, contributor, Dr. Beth Dupree, who's joining us from the hospital, just fresh out of the OR. Uh, our guest- guest this afternoon will be Beth Weinstock, and Beth is a psychologist and principal at the Resiliency Group uh, here in Philadelphia, and her work focuses on her private practice as well as leadership consultancy, uh, with a focus on women in particular. So um, I'm real excited to have her with us today, and we have a lot to talk about. But I want to welcome Beth to the show. She's joining us with from Beth. our hospital which,
2: studio. Which Which Beth? This path. yes oh, Dr Kat you pray today oh my God <laughs> what a day how are you guys doing down there We're doing great I'm
1: looking out the window and it's looking not so pretty as it was last week but um, that's okay it
2: was uh it was awfully chilling cold like the uh, the wet cold which I don't like i I don't mind dry cold I can handle all of that but the wet yeah. cold is awful it is awful. awful awful awful
1: only a couple days of it and then we're gonna get a beautiful rest of the week.
2: I know, and I had, I ate too much turkey over the weekend, I think. But it was a wonderful holiday. My boys were home. Were you with your kids?
1: Oh yes, we were. My my children were home, and we had 35 for
2: Thanksgiving at my sister in law's. You know the big family had, we have. I had four. I had four, which was wonderful. That's which is like the least I've ever ever had in my entire life. That sounds really
1: wonderful and relaxing and calm.
2: <laughs> it was it was amazing, and we you know we kind of hung out. Tommy only came home for two and a half days, which was fabulous. But uh, it's just nice to have your family together and kind of hang out. And we went uh, go karting at. Uh, Uh, speed raceway in Horsham and I got to see my son's go-karting skills which uh, was kind of funny because you know all those years of college and that expense and and uh, what you have to show for it is your kid finishes as the ninth fastest time at that raceway and he's he's never been there before and so I was like that is something to be really proud of you know as my the, the mom racer that I am so do you worry at all or do you just cheer him on no, I was racing with him. I was I was driving a car at the same you time. You Are you kidding? <laughs> I'm of impressed. <laughs> it actually it's something I um I wanna I wanna take some of my um, management team there because you can really build great Team relationships through stuff like that because you know it's not. I mean the the cars are they're um, they're electric go karts. They're fast, but it's not it's not like you're out on um, a racetrack in the in bad conditions. You're you're in helmets. You're in great little cars. But the cool thing is it it's about it's about teamwork and, and learning. You know you have to follow the rules. If they flag you that you're going slow, you've got to move over and let the other guy pass. And there's there's a lot to learn. I mean it's it's a really good team building um, experience. So I'm going to be interested in getting. Getting Beth's take on that because it's on, it's on my bucket list. Because this raceway place has a phenomenal, um, a, uh, a like a business meeting place, and I'm like, what more fun place to try to build a team than taking them outside the health system and doing something fun? So it's on, it's on my bucket list for uh, for the near future for the first quarter of 2016. So that's
1: great. Have you shared that news with them? Because now you're no, going to have to do it.
2: Well, they're going to hear it. I hopefully they're listening. I think my staff is still. Most of my staff is still in the operating room, but uh, this is going to be some of my um, male physician leaders because. It's a, it's a whole new relationship I have. I told you, you know, now that I'm in a, in my new role in the health system, I have a lot of men that I work with, and that now report to me, so to speak. And to try to, you know, really build these strong relationships. I think, you know, and racing is kind of it, it's it's much more of a guy sport than than women. There are way more male racers than there are women. Mm-hmm. But I think it's a great way to kind of break that ice. So I'll, I'll be interested to uh, to get Beth's take on it then. But I, listen, before we forget, tomorrow night, December first. Yeah. Um, I think you remember when I came back from the Integrative Medicine Conference, I was raving and ranting about this phenomenal naturopath, Dr. Lise Alshuler. I am going to be a guest on her show called Five to Thrive with Lise Alshuler and Carolyn Gazella. And it's tomorrow night. I, I've tweeted out the uh, the, the information. It's, it starts at live at 7 o'clock. Mm-hmm. And we're going to talk about the um, topic that I call the cliff uh, or what happens after cancer treatments completed and it's a really really important topic because it's something that a lot of people don't understand particularly family members they think that if someone's done their cancer treatment that life is ducky and you go back to where you were but the life that you had before that cancer diagnosis doesn't exist anymore so it's a really really important topic and particularly before before the holidays because the holidays are an uber stressful time for everybody anyway and so to be able to um attack this, you know, topic right before the holidays. I I think it's going to be pretty good. So, where can we pick up the show, Beth? Well, the show is actually on, uh, w4cs.com. Again, w4cs.com, which is a, uh, it's called Five to Thrive. You can Google it called Five to Thrive. Um, but their show, uh, it's, uh, it goes via the internet. I'm going to be doing it via Skype from my house. Oh, great. With a cup of tea in my hand and my fuzzy slippers on, which Very I nice. love that. I, I love that we get to do that, even though I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm kind of in my pajamas here at the hospital, my, my, uh, my scrubs, but, uh, Anyway, um, other, otherwise, everything is good. The practice is thriving. We're very busy. And um, I am excited to hear from Beth because I was checking her out online, and she's done some very cool things. And I actually want to get all of her wisdom because now that I'm in a new leadership position in the health system, I think she's someone that can give me a lot of very good information. And also, in sitting next to me is my breast fellow, who's actually you know you understand fellowships we talked about this before Our, a breast fellow is a surgeon with a who's already a board certified surgeon who's in a year of specialty training and so Liza Thalheimer is my um, breast fellow from Bryn Mawr. I have to send her back to Bryn Mawr tomorrow because her month is up with us So I'm sending her back in your direction um, but she's uh, hanging out with me here and she's on hold um, for the show so she might have some interesting questions because I think Beth King probably gives some very good advice to young physicians who are just about about to begin a uh, a new career path become going from like the student to the expert so Terrific. It's all good terrific okay that sounds great um, so
1: let's introduce our guest for today as I mentioned uh, her name again is Beth Weinstock and Beth is a psychologist and she is the principal at the resiliency group um, here in Philadelphia um, and she her work focuses on private practice but also very much involved in leadership coaching and in particular women which is why we're so thrilled to have her here this afternoon welcome to the show it is a pleasure Pleasure to be here. Thank you, Sue. We met, you and I met a long time ago, probably right. over a year ago. It's, uh, That's you right. know, And we finally got you here in the studio, and I'm, I'm really grateful because I know how busy you are. I'm delighted to be here. Yes. We, we met a year ago
0: when I was on a panel, and I remember that you asked a very good question towards the end of the panel discussion, and then we had a conversation after that, you and I.
1: Yeah. See, it, yeah. Pay, it pays to speak up and raise your hand. It
0: pays to speak up. That's probably the title of this
1: conversation. Yeah. Terrific! And um, as you know, we always like to give a nice backstory um, of our guests so that the listeners can get a real sense of who you are and what led to your work. So I understand that you were born and raised in a, a town called Greenwich, New York City. Is that correct? I, I was born and raised in Greenwich Village, New York City. Oh, it is City. Greenwich Village. Oh, okay. Yeah. The bio said yeah. Greenwich, and I thought it might. That's a
0: spelling error. That's
1: a spelling error. <laughs> I thought I'm not familiar with Greenwich, no, but Greenwich. that's funny. Okay. No. Very
0: cool hip town? It was a very cool hip town, yes. And I I grew up in a cool hip family in many ways. I was privileged in many ways and not necessarily financially, but I grew up with art and music and expectation of my being creative and the room for me to be creative. And in terms of gender expectations... There were no divides in my family. My mother worked, my father worked, and there was the assumption that I would do
1: whatever it is that led my, that was my passion. Yeah and and I know you and I talked off air about you know one of the challenges you faced as a young girl was struggling with reading um uh, which if people read your bio now and and your profile they might be surprised at that because you're so strong um academically and um talk about what that did for you uh your self esteem as a young girl as particularly in the family that you grew up yeah well It was not
0: easy in my family having a hard time learning how to read. Books were everywhere. My parents read all the time. And I had a hard time learning how to decipher letters and words. I was in a private school where I was the kid pulled out of the class to have remedial reading. Mm. So on the one hand, while I was encouraged and supported in so many ways, on the other hand, I grew up feeling like there's something I'm not doing right. Yeah there's some part of me that's not smart enough. There's something wrong with my brain. And I felt that in comparison to the other students in my class who seemed to have no trouble at all learning how to read, our early readers. Yeah. So it it did set me up for feeling that I'm just not smart enough. Mm. And when you have that kind of feeling when you're young, it's very hard to... Uh, compensate for, it's hard to learn to get past. Yeah. And I think it's one of the things that had me very sensitive to other people having trouble with something, struggling with something. Mm-hmm. And I think I became very attentive to the folks who were not having an easy time about one thing or another. And I do think it contributed very much to my sense of compassion for people who are managing not feeling as good as someone
1: else. Yeah. Let, let me ask you, when was it recognized? Because I think, obviously, when we're young and we're struggling with something and it goes unnoticed or, you know, we don't speak up and tell a parent, a teacher, a friend about it. Then it gets worse. So when um, was this um, this struggle that you were having in reading recognized? At what age? And then how did it manifest itself? Well, it was
0: recognized when I was seven, which is when the remedial reading started. So I still have memories of being seven years old, being pulled out of class, the one kid pulled out for the special attention So the attention to it started early, and then there was a lot of um, hard work that I put into being able to do the work. I have always done very well in school, and it always took me, I think, longer than some, certainly not longer than everyone, mm-hmm. but I've always known that to do well was going to take a lot of attention on my part, particularly when reading and writing was the task, and I've done a lot of reading and writing.
1: You have. You <laughs> have. Haven't. And I, yeah, I find it so interesting <laughs> that have. that would have been your particular struggle as a young girl, mm-hmm. um, and yet you did go on to receive a bachelor's degree, a master's degree, and a doctorate um, in psychoeducational processes, which That's I'll right. let you explain yeah. exactly exactly what that is. So I, I do want to know what was the motivating factor behind your academic drive and did it directly connect to those struggles as a young girl? It's a great question.
0: I don't really know how to connect the dots quite so clearly. I never had a big academic drive. I was just kind of curious about things and wanted to learn. And got satisfaction out of learning. So, in fact, I went into the wrong field first off. I thought I wanted to be an American historian and <laughs> went to graduate school in American history. Um, Columbia University was not very happy with me, and I was not very happy with them in that process. It was really um, a mismatch. And I, it took me a long time to find out that what I really wanted to do was what I'm doing.
2: Yeah, and and what? what... But I've, I've... Go ahead, Beth. I have a quick question. I have a quick question about your childhood. With the, do you think that if if you were a child today, that you would be have had a label, so to speak, because of your um, struggles with reading? Do, would you do you think you would have been labeled or medicated or something? Because I'm always I'm always concerned. I mean, I know that there were there were kids that I was I was slow to I was really good at reading comprehension, but I was very slow at the actual being able to read the pages. And I know that now we have kids that are, that that do struggle in school, but they they tend to get a, a label of different letters, and then are kind of um, I don't want to say ostracized, but they end up having uh, you know almost that stigma for life. And do, do you do you know if you if you were having your issues today if you would have been labeled with anything or
0: you know beth it's it's an interesting question because the the, the flip side of what you're saying is that today we actually have such good diagnostics that we can determine much more clearly than when I was young, what is the problem? You know, in in my day, there was just this global difficulty in learning how to read. But I think today, with the very good um, assessments that we have, kids can, while on the one hand, maybe get a label, and that may not be good, on the other hand, get Help at the very specific Correct. area that they're having difficulty in, and so many of even our public schools now have very well-trained people who can um, help a wide range of young students who are having learning differences
2: yeah 'cause i I mean I know that uh my my youngest son had um he was a slow reader, he was young for his age in school, and reading was really a challenge and after he worked with a reading specialist for about a year and a half it was it was like the light bulb turned in and it yeah. wasn't like there was something was missing it was like one day suddenly it all made sense, yeah mhm.
0: Yeah. Well, I'm glad that that happened for him. And I think that, again, we, we have found really good ways to attend to specific learning differences.
2: Um, no, I think We don't all learn the same way. We I mean, don't. We, some, people are, right. some people are right-brained. Some that's people right. are very left-brained. That's and right. that's, you know, traditionally schools were made for children that are, are, are able to learn via left-brain type processes. So yes. I was just curious. But I, I think it's fascinating that, uh, that that was your path. Mm -hmm. because now you're doing such amazing things in in trying to solve all these other uh, communication issues and relationship issues. So anyway, it's all good. So back to the story. Sorry, so that's okay. you chime <laughs> in any time? Yeah. Yeah. Thank no, you, great, Beth. great question.
1: I think it's it's true that the, the positive of today's world is that we do have these these um, diagnostics so that we can really get to the root of it. Where back, you know, when I think about our years growing up, yep. mm-hmm. um, things went unnoticed and untalked. Yeah, kids you know.
2: weren't even diagnosed with dyslexia back then. They and weren't. That's, that's right. And that right. was mm-hmm. hard. Mm-hmm. And, and it, if, it's such a treatable. It's, it's so kids are brilliant with dyslexia they just can't learn the same way and if they're not identified Mm -hmm. then they are then they then they don't survive in school Mm -hmm. and then that that
1: will add to the anxiety that's right right? and the insecurity so um one of the things uh, i wanted to mention and i want the audience to know is that you write for the huffington post i do and you write some great pieces and i read your uh post about not letting times of change and uncertainty hijack our Mm self-confidence um that of course struck a chord with me because um you and I again have talked you know outside of the studio about this fear that we sadly have to live with in today's world that we did not years ago and um, that speaks to the inner coach which is very much about the work that you do helping both men and women have an inner coach as opposed to this inner critic that continually gets in the way um, and you stated that the inner coach has a positive oriented thought pattern that different differs from the inner critic. So talk for a few minutes about um, the inner critic that we all have, what it does, and some of the ways that we can turn that around to be a coach that helps us deal with negativity, fear, um, and all of the other, you know, chatter. Well, I think that many of us have an inner voice that
0: says things like, I'm just not smart enough or I'm not Good enough at this Or I'm not pretty enough For women it's often I'm not thin enough Or I'm not For men it's not I'm buff enough Or I'm not going to Be able to get that Project done Because nobody will ever Believe in what I have to say there are many different ways that an inner critic speaks to us. Sometimes it's about worry. There's the worry that, well, what if I go for that job interview and I don't get it? What, what if they don't like what I have to say? What if that group doesn't invite me back after I've been there the first time? There are multiple ways that we have kind of uh, fear and negativity worrying and self-criticism. Some of us hear it in the form of, I'm so stupid. Some of us hear it as a voice that says, you're just not good enough. And not not everyone has the same degree of negative self-talk. But when we have negative self-talk, it's really important to be able to hear it. And identify it, because one of the things that happens that's so insidious is that if we have a strong negative self-talk, a negative inner voice, it can be so, so frequent in our mind that we don't even begin to hear it anymore. And in order to reverse it, in order to counteract it, we have to get clear about what it is that we're saying to ourselves. Once we can hear what we're saying, we can develop the voice of an inner coach. My work partner and I, Dr. Jane Schuer, at the Resilience Group, we call this creating an inner coach stronger than the inner critic. Once we can hear the negativity, we can say, oops, I just heard it. Stop. Is there another way to think that thought? Is there another prediction that I could make about that? Once I hear myself saying, oh, they'll never like my proposal, I can go, wait a minute. Why did I say that to myself? I can stop that thought and say, well, there's the possibility that they're going to accept my proposal. And we can begin to shift the patterning. The negative is patterned. For some of us, certainly for myself, it comes from childhood. And those patterns from childhood are very embedded in our brain. Beth, you know much about this in terms of oh, pattern, yeah. brain patterns. But we can create new brain patterns, and in the last 20 years, there's been so much phenomenal research on the brain and on neural networking and how we can create new pathways, literal pathways in the brain, towards more positive self-talk, more positive um, affirmation of the self, towards positive future thoughts, but it takes practice.
2: Mm. And, and I guess a lot of neuroplasticity.
0: Neuroplasticity. Yeah.
1: Um, and and I guess a lot of work to determine where these negative thoughts originated from. Isn't that equally as important to being able to kind of train them and manage it, it's them? certainly
0: a very important part. So, yes, it's important to know If I came from parents that were particularly critical, it's like, oh, yes, I've internalized their voice. I'm being critical because that's what I heard growing up. Or if we've had experiences in which we have not been successful in one way or the other, we may have that voice very profoundly. So, yes, it's important to know where the negative pattern came from. But equally and even maybe more important is to recognize the negative pattern and choose to interrupt it and practice a new way of speaking to ourselves. You know, it, it it I'm as a psychologist I'm a believer absolutely that it's important to know where our issues come from, but if we only know where they come from and don't do anything differently about it, we may not change. And right. the fabulous new info from neuroplasticity, thank you Beth for mentioning that wonderful word is that we can shift the patterns if we pay attention. You know, I'm, I'm, um, I'm an adult learner of taking the piano. So I'm one year into practicing Good new girl. patterns with my fingers. And it's mind-blowing how hard it is. But it's also amazing that if you practice, things change things shift so I'm playing things now I wasn't able to play a year ago and I've learned to say things to myself in my mind differently than the way I would have said them to myself myself 20 years ago Mm -hmm. there's a lot more self-support and self-encouragement in my own self-talk than there used to be so since I know I've changed with practicing I know other people can change with practicing. And that's the work that um, my partner and I, Jane Jane Sure, and I, do when we work with groups of people, is helping them get clear about the negative mind messages, how we can interrupt them, and what the practice yeah. looks like, and then doing that with them.
2: I tell my patients all the time that their thought forms and beliefs, what they say, what they think, um, dictates a lot of times how our immune system responds as well. And, you know, if you identify yourself as a cancer victim or as a cancer patient instead of someone who may have had cancer who's now healthy, whole, and complete and healed, it's a very different mindset. Yes. Yes, we, 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 we need to
0: be attentive as well to those belief systems that we have about ourselves. You know, if we believe that we're only going to fail, and Beth, you're saying if you believe that you're only the victim of an illness, if that's the belief system, it will determine a lot of how you feel about yourself and how you see yourself in the future. So a lot of the work is also about getting clear about what have I been, been believing about myself, and is it accurate? Do and what, I need to challenge this negative belief that I've had?
1: And would you say that we are continually, if, if, as you mentioned, you've come to some realizations of your own later in life, that we are always continually getting better with this um, positive Mindset over a negative. Uh, In other words, we won't get to a place where we fixed it, is my guess. Is that true? I think we can get to a place where we're no longer hurting
0: ourselves with negative assumptions and negative forecasting about what's going to happen to us. Mm -hmm. I don't know that we ever fix ourselves. In fact, I think that a lot of what we need to do is be compassionate with ourselves about the things that are not going to be fixed. Yeah. <laughs> you know, none of us is perfect. Um, we're not going to be. And actually, that's that's one of the things about dealing with uh, negative self-belief is too many people think that if I fix me and keep fixing me, I'm going to wind up being some kind of perfect self, which mm-hmm.
1: is not going to happen. Right, right and would you say there's you know there as you mentioned early in the show, people have different levels right yes. of their negative talk and i and I would imagine that's based on their experience their personal life yes. experience um, do you see any differences when you are working with clients patients um, men versus women in their ability to accept your recommendations, you know, the work that you want them to do? Um, is there pushback maybe f- more from one or the other gender? Yeah, it's an interesting question, Sue. I
0: actually don't experience any more resistance or pushback from men. I think that women are quicker to know that they have negative self-talk going on. When I meet women and I say what I do is I help women create an an inner coach stronger than their inner critic. They smile. They go, "Oh yeah, I need that. that sounds great." <laughs> and I say, "I need that too." Sign me up. <laughs> yeah, right. sign we all me need up. that. Right? Yeah, I think fewer men resonate to it, though. I don't know that they have any less an inner critical message system it sits differently i think Mm -hmm. and they are less apt to be talking about it Mm -hmm. with each other one of the great things about women i think in my experience is our willingness to share what some of these struggles are and i think that men by and large have a harder time sharing what's in their own way
1: yeah, and that, gosh, that's a whole other topic, isn't it? Why? That's
2: because they're in their cave most of the time. <laughs> their cave. Where they're safe with their emotions in their cave.
1: Right, right. Well, I think we, the three of us probably have experienced, you know, just men not being as willing to discuss these types of topics because it might point to, um, something that needs fixing. Uh, women are more apt to, to want to try to fix problems and want to be better and men seem to want to just kind of go out and do their job every day and not really, and again, I'm totally generalizing, but not talk about feelings and, you know, emotions. I think, as a generalization that you know that's true, interesting lately in my practice,
0: I have a number of men who are just so eager to be learning and to that's be t- great. taking recommendations and to expand their lives so I think the generalization's accurate, but it's certainly not accurate all the time because it's just been thrilling to work with the men that I've been working with lately. Yeah, that's great to
1: hear. We're going to take a quick break for our sponsor. When we come back, I want to talk about your women's leadership works and and the leadership work you're doing with both men and women. We will be right back. There
0: are 365 days to schedule a mammogram. Today is as good as any.
1: Welcome back everyone to this week of Women to Watch here on WWDB, Talk860 and WomenToWatch.net. Uh, we are joined this afternoon by Beth Weinstock, psychologist and principal at the Resilience Group here in Philadelphia. And um, before the break, we were talking about you know, differences between men and women and feelings and emotions and all that, all that stuff that they don't want to, they don't want to face. But Beth mentioned that she's actually having some real positive um, feedback from the, the male clients
2: I am yeah
1: yeah, and I love to hear that because as you know Women to Watch is really about encouraging more female leadership and we certainly need men on board um, in order to see that Um, one of the things that you're doing that I think is going to have a very uh, strategic um, result is this Women's Leadership Works which you founded so tell the listeners a little bit about that and what you do with both women and young girls What we do in our work is bringing
0: awareness around where is it that I shoot myself in the foot? Where do I get in my own way and what can I do about it? And what are the themes for young women particularly that get in the way? And we know those themes. We know that that inner critic creates a sense of I'm not entitled to negotiate a salary. I'm not entitled to speak up at the board meeting. I'm not – I'm an imposter. They're going to find me out. Everybody thinks I'm smarter than I really am. Um, so many women and, and perhaps Sue, you, you've run into this end sentences with a question mark you know the mm. end of the sentence goes right up because yes. I'm just not quite sure of what, was, what it is that I'm saying <laughs> and that um, sometimes kills my, uh, my my sense of competency as it's received by other people so a lot of what we do is bring awareness or ask women in our own audiences what are the ways in which they know this to be true and what can they individually be doing to counteract these themes where we get in our own way, and what can they be doing in their own workplaces? So some of the time we'll be asking people, what is it that goes on in your workplace that you know is positive towards supporting women having their voice heard and women in leadership, and have that be shared so that people can learn from one another? There certainly are some very good things going on in different organizations Mm -hmm. that are supporting women's leadership. Yes. And then again, we work on how are you going to develop your own inner coach to be stronger than your inner critic? Where are you individually needing to track for yourself where you, um, hear your negativity and shift it around? And that, that's work that we do, um, In groups, we do it with, we've done it with many young uh, college women's groups, which is great, getting young women before they go out into the work world full time to be aware of these themes so that they can be prepared when they walk into the workplace and not shoot themselves in the foot.
1: Right. You know, I th- I think that's so critical getting to to you know, we say women we're we're talking about women, young women, but mm-hmm. if we can begin to give the right messaging to young girls, that's, you know, right. way before, I think it's we're going to see a big change. That's right.
0: And interestingly, and the good news is that there are many college campuses that are bringing in programs like ours to be supporting women so that there are more women leaders once people are getting out of college. So Beth, I'm I'm Uh, interested in your experience with the young female docs, because I think that they're really up against a lot of these issues in traditional medicine.
2: Well, I'm I'm very fortunate because uh, I get to train many different young physicians every year, and I will say the majority that come through our practice are women, because most of the surgeons going into uh, surgical breast oncology are women. And what's interesting is uh, seeing the kind of the transition From residency is a it's kind of a um, I don't want to call it a safe haven, but it, it's five years of this practice of you're you're on this treadmill going through residency where every day is like really survivor, you, like you're, you're just trying to survive. And when we get them in their year after their residency, in their year of learning how to be, you know, a a skilled breast cancer expert, they're kind of transitioning into this whole new place where they don't have to be as potentially as... um, one of the guys as they were in residency, they get to start feeling, um, who they, who they are in their soul again. They get to start bringing aspects of healing back into the healthcare. Um, and it's not just about, you know, doing the cases and doing the surgeries. Um, it's really about learning how to care for the patients. And it's also, I love it because I get to mentor them on other aspects than not just surgery and the biopsies, but actually about life, about, you know, what to, what to expect out of their practice what to ask for out of their practice and also you know what to look for in relationships because a lot of the fellows that I get they're not married yet they're they're trying to figure out this whole you know work life balance this whole juggling thing and mm. and so that aspect of mentorship I think has been wonderful and uh, I have young breast surgeons all around the country who you know at a moment's notice they'll text me a question they'll get, they'll shoot me a call and Liza's sitting over here this whole hour right now she's like smirking from ear to ear because I can tell every time you say something that resonates with her it's like she's going oh my god there she's got me my inner my inner yes I'm, I'm this good and then you have a bad case or you can't find the sentinel node and you think oh my god I'm going to be in practice by myself and this is going to be just me and it's it's really about we're, we're problem solvers. Surgeons are problem solvers. And so for these young surgeons, being able to help them to build the self esteem to be able to go out and practice and do what they do really well, which is, number one, we're healers. We're all healers helping women and men on this journey with cancer. And number two, we're all very skilled surgeons. And, you know, some of us, I've been doing this 27 years, and if I can't do something and make it look easy, I shouldn't be doing it. <laughs> you know, 25, 26 years experience. And so it can be frustrating, but it's also, like today, you know, uh, Liza got to learn little, just little nuances. She's probably done a million and few in her life, but watching me, like Watching a technique that she can take those pearls away, like to me, that is the greatest gift. That's why I love training these young surgeons because I didn't have that. I left surgical residency, came out in private practice, and I did not get that. That gift of having that that kind of that bridge and that mentor, and so I think you know, and like Sue does, Sue is a mentor for a lot of other young women going into the communications, and where where we can give that gift of our you know our personal experience and and say, listen, I was there, I felt the same way, validating those um, feelings of insecurity yep. and mm-hmm. the oh my God, July first, like people are going to come in and suddenly I'm the expert. And so I, um, I think that uh, it, it's neat because we're at a different place in healthcare now than, than when I finished 25 years ago. There's no longer this mystique that you have to just go and, and you know, cut your teeth yourself. Like, we really want our young surgeons to come out. And feel confident. And if they have questions, it's okay to call and ask. It's great to ask for help if you're in the operating room and you and you don't you know you, you don't have to be the world's expert on day number one. You just have to be competent, and you have to know your limitations. And um, we're not going to finish somebody in a, in a fellowship if they're not going to be you know skilled enough to go out. So I uh, I'm trying to get Liza a job with one of my former residents down in Washington. Nancy uh, Nancy Marcus is a great breast surgeon in Washington, and uh, she's looking for a partner so I told her I said I'm going to hook Liza up with her because I would not send somebody to a friend of mine that I wouldn't hire myself does does Liza have a question for Beth? she's actually on the phone you can get her on the phone because <laughs> Beth Weinstock I, I, I'm i saying that you Beth Weinstock so you know that it's yeah. not she's yeah. talking to you but um, Liza is uh, can they turn her on so she's actually live? well you know she's what she can do she can call,
1: call call she can call the list she's on it oh she's on, she's on okay. it I'm here hey, there she is Liza hi Liza <laughs> Hi. Hi. Welcome to the show. Thank you. So great to have you. And, um, yeah, feel free to, to speak yeah. directly to Beth and ask her some questions. All right. Well, what she was saying, you know, that was really resonating with me is just, um, you know, that inner self-doubt that you have. I think that's so important to talk to young women about, I think, especially being a female in general surgery I I where I trained uh, it was mostly men so it's been pretty pretty nice to be out here with Dr Dupree's group you know, where yeah. it's all women um, and she's been a great mentor so
2: I'll be sad when my month is over today Liza yeah. can I interrupt for one second can you
1: turn your radio down or off because we're getting a, an echo
2: You know what it's got to be my microphone
1: Okay. Go ahead. Yeah. Well, you certainly have a
0: gift in working with Beth. And hopefully then when you are in the position to mentor other people, you're going to be giving the same gift. And it changes the culture, I think, wherever we are when we experience someone who is such a nurturing, excited, and enthusiastic helper in the process of your own development. I've been gifted in having that in my career, and you're being gifted this month. I hope next month is gentle for you when you don't have Beth around. <laughs>
1: that will be the test, right?
0: <laughs> yes. But you well, know,
1: I mean, I'm lucky. I'm at Bryn Mawr uh, the rest of the year, so I, I also have great mentors there as great. well. It's just, it's nice to be with with women for a change.
0: Yeah, I'll bet. And, you know, what we're really doing, we're we're beginning to talk about women supporting other women and validating the fears and the worries and the am I ever going to make it and am I going to be good enough. And to hear from our teachers and our mentors, of course you're going to be good enough. That's that's part of the process is doubting sometimes, but you're going to get there. And to be pointing out, All the positive things. Because, you know, one of the things when we're serious about being competent is we tend to get glued to negative criticism so that we can get better, so that we can fix ourselves and become more and more competent, as if the only important feedback is the negative feedback. Um, I, I certainly have been there myself. It's like, well, tell me what else I can do well. Tell me what else I could fix. Tell me what else, what, at the end of the interview, I'll probably ask Sue what I could have done better at the interview, you know? And I think we need to all get better at knowing what we do well, at being able to present our strengths, to believe in them, and to take in compliments that we get, to, to take in the accolades that come our way, rather than only look at the, what have I not done well enough at that I can get better at. I think in some regards that's a, a human thing but I think women tend to do that more than men. And we need to get better at having Velcro for all the good feedback, not just Velcro for the commentary about how we can be doing something better than we are.
1: Mm. One of the things I have a question for you, and, and Liza, you can stay on because I want to know if this pertains to you as a as a young woman, woman, excuse me, um, in your field. And that is, we're we're surrounded so often, uh, and now today more than ever, with experts in all fields. Yeah. So if we're constantly being fed messaging on how to look perfect, how to work perfect, how to be the perfect mother, all of those things, you know, um, then it's hard to not be out every day trying to do everything so perfectly. So how do we – how do we – fight against that and allow ourselves. I love the when you mentioned validating um, our fears and our insecurities, and I'm sure Liza feels better when she understands that her peers and her colleagues have those same fears. But how do we, in a world where we're being told how to do everything so perfectly, uh, still have that positive mindset? Well, I- I think we have to share our
0: failures more often with one another. You know, the we things do. that yeah. don't that don't go well and that's part of why I said Columbia didn't like me and I didn't like Columbia. You know, I, I um I didn't do well in a graduate program that I was not well suited for. I can call that a failure. At the time it felt like a terrible failure, but the fact is it was all wrong for me.
1: It wasn't a good fit. It not wasn't a, a good
0: well, it felt like a failure and it wasn't a good fit. You're exactly right. So I think we need to share those things. Um I think we need, you know, a couple of years ago the Harvard Business Review had an entire uh, journal committed to failure. Failure was the big word on the front of the, the cover of the Harvard Business Review. And increasingly, business people are talking with each other about the things that didn't go right, what they learned from it, mm-hmm. and moving on to their next success. Mm-hmm. And I think that when we share what hasn't worked, we learn a lot in addition to then what we can um, put into our next efforts, and believe that simply because one thing didn't work, another thing might. And that's part of the positivity thing, that if we can have more of a positive mindset about who we are and what our strengths are, we can also accept the things that we're not good at. We can accept the things that don't fit for us and opt for the things that do. Yeah. Uh,
1: and I, you know, I'm hoping that Liza, you know, speaking about mentorship, receives these kind of messages from doctors like Dr. Dupree, where she is not kind of out there all alone, you know, putting the pressure on herself, which I think yeah. a lot of young people do mm-hmm. today. It doesn't always come from, you know, uh, the people that are raising them or family. It often comes from within the pressure to do everything so well. Yes. Yeah, and perfectionism is, you know,
0: the enemy of the good. Mm. And I, I think we all need to pay attention to when we're being perfectionistic. I try because I know I have that tendency. But we spend too much time sometimes trying to make things perfect rather than letting good be good enough and move on to the next task.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, perfect, perfect gets you in trouble because the enemy of good is better. And uh, it's unfortunate that we live in a society where the expectation is perfection because perfection is really not an expectation that any of us can have, you know, all day, every day. You know, sometimes we do things and, and they're, they're ex- exceptional, but perfection is a word that can get you really into a bad place. That is true. Mm-hmm.
1: One of the topics I wanted to make sure we got to today is the uh, trauma recovery. Um, you deal with patients oh, yes. and, and clients who have um, experienced trauma, and I think that it's very prevalent and I'm wondering you know this is just a radio show it's mm-hmm. it's not you working in your office but if you might be able to talk about some of the tools or practices that people who have gone through or are going through some type of trauma um, do you use and would be helpful for them great yeah Well, in my private practice,
0: I do work with a lot of people who've experienced different kinds of trauma, from abuse to the trauma of a car accident or the trauma of a sudden loss of a loved person. It's really important, and Beth, I hope you'll chime in with this, that we pay attention to our nervous system. Because trauma is really about the body, mind-body's inability to manage overwhelming circumstances. When we can't manage what's overwhelming, we, we go into, um, overload in our nervous system. And we experience what doesn't feel normal. We experience tremendous fear or shutdown or depression or high anxiety. And what has been very useful for folks I work with is to understand the nature of the mind-body trauma, of the reaction to trauma, to understand it. Because people feel guilty who have traumatic responses to things. People feel shame. You know, I shouldn't still be feeling this way or I should get over it or it wasn't such a big deal and minimize what has happened to them. And when people understand how the mind-body responds to overwhelming circumstance, that alone is often very useful in under, in undoing some of the trauma responses. Then there are very specific techniques like it's an odd name, something called EMDR. It's a way of working with the brain that has tremendous success in undoing the results of trauma. And another process I use that involves body relaxation uh, called somatic experiencing. There are increasing numbers of very good trauma therapies, and they all, in one way or another, deal with the with the sense of overwhelm that has overcome a person who has experienced trauma.
2: Beth,
1: and of course, you know, dealing with your patients, this is certainly is is traumatic, uh, what they're going what a, through with you. Y-
2: yeah, one of the things that we see in, in breast cancer care and, you know, in just about any chronic health illness, health um, issue, is there is, a, there's absolutely a, factor of what I call post-traumatic stress disorder, it, just like what we see with uh, within our military and anyone that goes through a very stressful situation, and there is an absolute direct link between our emotional stresses and how our body's immune system responds to them. So a lot of times I see people coming in with a diagnosis of cancer after a horrifically traumatic episode, whether it's a divorce, a loss of a child, a, you know, some initiating effect and they say well everyone tells me that that these two are absolutely not related and I can't you can't say that a huge stress that beats up your immune system is unrelated to something it may not have been the um, the only root cause but it could have been a factor that precipitates it so to me just treating the cancer isn't enough if I don't actually get to um, the root of what is like the baggage people come into cancer with, then I really can't help them to come out the other side um, feeling healthy, whole, and complete, getting to a place where um, they're, they're living not in that fight-and-flight response where a lot of people live these days. And, and Beth, so- I'm
0: sure that that, 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 that relates to you're talking about the cliff, And that after the cancer isn't there, the trauma of the cancer is still there. And the trauma for the family is still there. And so important that the whole family system understands what has happened to all of them.
2: Correct. And it's the, you know, to me, I, I tell my patients all the time, you know, I would be the best surgeon on the planet if I could skillfully cut out fear when I cut out cancer. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Because fear is that one aspect of cancer that the scalpel cannot take care of. Yeah. And it's the one thing that, you know, I, I learned in my residency, you know, nothing heals like cold steel, to cut is to cure. And I got great technical surgical skills, but I think one of the things that our fellows learn when they come to us is that the surgery part that we do in the operating room is the easiest part of cancer care the most difficult part is helping our patients navigate through this process yeah. to come out the other side feeling whole again releasing the fear realizing that you know none of us not not any one of us on this conversation today is guaranteed to wake up tomorrow healthy whole and complete you know we are we are all living you know every day is a gift and cancer has the ability, if someone chooses, to help to actually get to the other side of whatever it is, like to get to a positive place and really live in the moment and and learn how to enjoy life again. And it is a, um, it's kind of been my my life's work now is to to get. You know, the surgery is the easy part. I swear to God, people laugh at me, but it's like the surgery is the most simple part of what we do. And that's the one thing that if I can can impart that wisdom on, on these young breast surgeons that, you know what, what you do in the operating room is the easiest thing that you ever do to a patient because what we really have to do is focus on that individual and how do we get them again to get back to a place where they don't sit in their kitchen waiting for cancer to come back or worried about every ache and pain that they have in their body thinking that it's the cancer.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Well, Beth, your work is a gift, and I'm I'm glad to make your acquaintance over the radio waves. <laughs> Sorry <laughs> it's not in person, but it's really lovely hearing how committed you are and passionate about whole health, not just body health. That's right. That's yeah, right, that's, the whole person. Yeah. I,
2: I I do think it's the wave of the future though for healthcare because I think the, the whole the pill for the ill society and, and just treating the disease, it's it doesn't work anymore. We know it, our healthcare system's broken. And the only way to, to get back to it is to get back to the basics. Start with a you know, start with how do we how do we get whole again? How do we help people become well? Well, and thank goodness for Beth Weinstock, you know, who's doing
1: that, you know, helping people get well. Beth, one of the questions I had for you was when you do work with uh, someone and you're working on their – their inner coach. Yes. Um, What is it that you see, in speaking to female leadership, what is it that you feel we will see from a cultural standpoint once we're able to get women to move through these insecurities and the the negative talk and pursue these leadership roles and take on more responsibility on a global level? Well, I love that you put that in the future of what we're going to see when. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) We have a long way to go.
0: Yeah, but that's the positive. Frame for it, so I'm grateful for that. Thank you. I think we're going to see more collaboration, uh, more listening, Mm. uh, more support for quote balance in life, even though there is no balance in life. Right. But more attention to validating people's choices the choice to take time off to be a mother or the choice to not take time off or the choice to have children to not have children. Um, I think that we'll see more permission for bringing children to work where it's appropriate, where there's daycare, where there's more flexibility, where there is both maternity and paternity time off so that infants can experience their parental care. I'd like to see more flexible Hours, and I think that, that women have that understanding because it is the challenge for women to be doing that impossible thing called balance, and we bring that consciousness to work.
1: Exactly. Definitely. Um, we we only have a moment left, so I wanted you to just leave the audience with one last thought, um, you know, something they can focus on in 2016 to improve their own inner voice. I love the question. Well, if everyone could think every morning
0: of what encouraging, positive message they needed to give themselves during the day, if every day we could name what that was, and every day carry that positive message with us, I think we would make a difference for ourselves and other people.
2: I think we can do that, right? We can do that, Beth. Absolutely. I do it. I, it, it's, it's I know you do. It's just talk in the mirror first thing in the morning. <laughs> That's right. That's right. You, you, believe me, we all have opportunities for improvement. We just need to focus on what's great about us right now.
1: That's right. That's right. Listen, I am so grateful again, Beth, for you joining us this afternoon. Great conversation. Thank you. I'm F- grateful for being here. Thanks, Sue. And uh, I hope you'll tune in next Monday here at WWDB Talk 860 and womentowatch.net. Um, to, and check out our website to see who's in our lineup um, and who is coming down the road. Beth, I hope you have a great week. Will you be, jo- will you be back with us
2: next Monday? I will be back Monday. I'm teaching a course in Las Vegas this weekend, but I'm coming, home, I'm coming home Saturday. So I will be here Monday on the show with a smile on my face. Okay. And, uh, again, thank you
1: to Holy Redeemer Health System for being one of our core sponsors. And thank you to Jocelyn Ewert, who's going to be on the air in just a couple of weeks. She's the founding principal of Entrust Financial. That's it, everyone. Thank you so much, and have a great week.